we've been on the road for the last six weeks um, in our messages, and we've been traveling through Asia Minor, okay, uh, modern day Turkey, in a series called Seven. If you'll pull up that map, we've traveled. We started at Ephesus and kind of formed a horseshoe, and today we land in the last city on this map, Laodicea. Um, next week in our series finale, I've got to tell you. I feel like God has downloaded a word, a letter to celebrate church. It's still developing right now, but it's almost done already. The Lord has given me some insight into what we need to hear as a church. And so next week, we will cap off the series or finish out by giving you the letter to the church in Clinton, Mississippi, uh, which I am really excited about. I've never done something like this before. I am really, really excited. Um, so today, we are talking about this city. Everybody say, Leo. Leo. Decia. Okay. Um, surprisingly, it got its name from a princess, uh, or a queen actually, and her name was Laodice. Um, I feel bad for her. Uh, but in order to make it sound a little bit better when he named the city, he said Laodicea and named it that. We're gonna talk a little bit about this city today before we dive into the word. But if you have your Bible and you wanna go to Revelation 3 and just get ready and prepared, um, that'll be helpful to you in just a minute. I wanna give you four details about Laodicea. And it's going to help you understand this letter that Jesus is having John write to them. The first historical detail that I want to give you is that they were one of three cities in a river valley. Okay, that's really important. Actually, that stands outside of the other details, the four that I'll give you. But that's important for you to understand. They were situated in a river's valley. The first detail that I'll give you is that they were wealthy. They had a lot of wealth. They were extremely rich. The city in Laodicea, you can kind of see superimposed the ruins right there. That picture, that image is of the city of Laodicea. You can still visit it today. But they lived in a prosperous city. And it was kind of like if you've ever heard on the news. Well, I mean, you could imagine New York City, you know, Wall Street, lots of money. Think of a place like Zurich, um, Switzerland. Yeah, anybody got a Swiss bank account? If so, we will figure out how you can wire money to our church account. It'll be great. But no, they lived in a place that was pretty much, they were minting their own coins. They had their own reserves and they were, we could say filthy rich, okay? It was an agricultural region and it was at the center of several key trade routes. So there was lots of money being passed back and forth and people were making a profit. The second thing that's really important for you to know is that they had health, okay? Health would be the other thing that was a real focus for their city. In fact, Laodicea had a school of medicine. One of the first primitive or ancient schools of medicine. You could say it was the chief medical center for the region, kind of like we have UMMC and all the um, things that go along with it here in the Jackson Metro. But this, this school of medicine actually developed an eye salve that was made from something called Figurian powder. It was a rock that they found in their area that once they broke it down and then added some ointments with it, as you applied it to your eyes, those with weak eyes, that's something that they called back then various diseases, but they believed that it would heal the sick. So just think through these things as we go through them. The third thing is this, wool. 
I was telling my daughters this week because we were talking about something having to do with coats or sweaters or something and already being in the preparation for the message, they had in this area, in this city of Laodicea, they actually had a popular sheep, which was a black sheep. So they had black wool for the most part. And if you were affluent, you wore all black. So people were, they were standing out in a crowd because you could tell Mr. So-and-so because he was dressed all in black. What do we think about black clothing today, ladies? It's classy, love it, it's slimming, it's this, it's that. They actually, they came up with this a long time ago and said, you know what, it makes you look good. We're going to have all these black sheep and wool clothes that come from this. So just keep thinking about the fact that these things are there in Laodicea. And finally, Laodicea was known for its water. Not because it was good, but because it was bad. So the river water was not drinkable, even though they were in a river valley and there were three other cities or two other cities with them making the third, it was not drinkable, but they had a solution. They came up with the idea and they had plenty of money. So you can throw money at a problem, right? And try to fix it. And so they had plenty of money and they decided to make something called an aqueduct. Um, there was just one problem though. That as they brought in the waters from the other cities, when it arrived, it wasn't in its original form. The cities that they piped in the water in the aqueducts, that came from five miles away. A city called Aeropolis was there, and they had a hot mineral spring. People would go there and travel from the, the, the known world at that time, travel there to go and sit in the hot springs. Anybody here ever been to hot spring? To a hot spring, whether it's in hot springs or whatever. I've been to them. Uh, some of them stink really bad. <laughs> some of them stink really bad. But this one apparently was attractive to people. There was another city. That other city was Colossae. We have the Bible, the chapter to, or the book to Colossians, written to the church at Colossae. And they were popular for mountain spring water that came down as the the snow melted off the tops of the mountains and came down. So here's what they came up with in Laodicea. Let's set up some aqueducts and we will get water, cold water from here and hot water from here. But there was a problem. Those cities were five miles away or more. And so by the time that it got piped into Laodicea, It was neither hot nor cold. This is an old aqueduct. And if you can see the circular part inside there, that's actually like calcium buildup and deposits from years and years um, where you can see where the water was running. Now, they, they had this problem, though, because they spent all this money to solve this big problem, but they still had a problem. I don't know about you, but in the warmth of the summer, there is nothing more refreshing than an ice cold drink, right? You don't want hot water, lukewarm water, tap water. Like you want ice cold. And in the winter, some of you still think it's winter uh, here right now. Uh, in the winter, uh, you want hot water because you want to make coffee, tea, hot chocolate, whatever. You want something to warm you up. I can remember being a kid shoveling snow. That was my first job, my first business, shoveling the neighbor's uh, you know, walkways and that kind of thing. And while I did that, my mom would give me a thermos to carry with me that had hot chocolate in it. And that was the only thing that kept me going was like, okay, I'm almost out of hot chocolate. Then that can be done for the day kind of thing. But lukewarm water is useless. The verses that I'm going to share with you right now, coming from chapter three, verse 14, 15, and 16, 
these verses right here have an incredible mark or leave an incredible mark on the church when they receive them. Verse 14 says this, And to the angel in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. This is how Jesus is referring to himself, essentially. We would say that the Amen, how many of you could say Amen? Say Amen. Amen. You've said that at some point in your life, probably, even if it was in a jokingly way. Amen means essentially, so be it, or yes, I agree. So you got to be careful what you say amen to. But Jesus is the amen of God, really. He is the one that says, this is, I am the rescue plan. I am, I know what I'm doing and I'm coming as a faithful and true witness. I am the beginning of God's creation. Verse 15 says, I know your works. We've talked about this in the other churches we've gone through that Jesus says he knows their works. And he says this, you are neither cold nor hot. Now the translation that you're reading on the screen, I will paraphrase that last phrase so that you understand it. I wish that you were either cold or hot. We don't really talk like that anymore. I wish you were either piping hot or freezing cold. Jesus has something very interesting to say after that because he says in verse 16, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. If you visit Laodicea today, you can see those aqueducts that they used. But the idea behind this is that that Jesus is commenting and making sure that they understand is the problem that you experience in the physical is actually a spiritual problem you have as well. The Greek word that Jesus, that's translated in Greek from this passage where it says, I will spit or other versions say, I will spew you out of my mouth. It is actually the word that represents projectile vomit. Have you ever done that? Anybody? I have. I got so sick in Florida after eating at, I I don't know where it was, but I don't, I'm never going to go back there, wherever it was. Some steak, Texas Roadhouse actually. Got a great steak. I thought it was great. Had onions and peppers, you know, sauteed or onions and mushrooms sauteed on the top. Are you getting hungry? Does this sound good? Um, and I remember tasting it, but I, it was kind of a little bit greasy. Anyway, I got the stomach bug that last night, the, that night after I ate that. And I haven't really eaten onions and mushrooms since then. That was a year ago uh, together in that form because... It left a mark on me. I was vomiting. We were in a guest house. I was vomiting. I was using the restroom. It was the worst experience of my life. How many of you love to vomit? Anyone? I'm not putting my hand up. Jesus doesn't either. And he actually says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The idea here is that Jesus wants his followers to be either hot, being on fire for him, or to be cold towards him because middle of the road is not acceptable. And you say, that's kind of interesting that Jesus would actually go so far as to say, I'd rather you be an atheist and a good one than be a middle of the road Christian. Because even a cold hearted atheist at some point can hear the gospel and be warm to it and then turn to a fiery hot believer. But the idea here is that if you're in the middle, it just doesn't work. Um, I think this is kind of funny. I came up with this as a last minute addition to my message. But I want to know how many of you have ever heard Jeff Foxworthy do his comedy routine of you might be a redneck if. 
Anybody ever seen those pictures or heard that? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you a few of them because it's going to help me in my message today. You might be a redneck if you own a home that is mobile and five cars that aren't. Come on, you should laugh louder, okay? For the, for the, for the speaker, okay? You might be a redneck if going to the bathroom at night involves shoes and a flashlight, okay? <laughs> Some of you are like, wait, I do that and I live in a regular house. Okay. You might be a redneck if you think a subdivision is part of a math problem, okay? And his last one that I picked was, you might be a redneck if your wife has ever said, Bubba, come move this transmission so I can take a bath. So here's the idea. You might be a lukewarm Christian if you want to be spared from the penalty of your sin, but you actually don't want to stop sinning. Oh, it's getting quiet. You, you might be a lukewarm Christian if you say Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but then you never share your faith with your neighbor, your coworker, your family, your friends. I won't step on your toes long. It'll be over soon. I'll give you a Band-Aid. You might be a lukewarm Christian if you give God the leftovers of your time, your money, and your talents instead of the first and the best part of those things. And I really believe that we ought to stop using the excuses of a busy schedule, bills, and forgetfulness. Oh, I just forgot. And just call it what it is. Malachi chapter 1 verse 8 actually says that is evil. He says, God is saying to his people, what is this that you've brought me? The leftovers? That is evil. Why would you do that to me? I'm the God of all creation, the God of the world. Why would you do that? And he's talking about a physical possession. So think about your time, your money, your talents. And let's stop using those excuses of a busy schedule or bills or whatever else that we can use and just call it what it really is. The truth is this, that half-hearted Christians make Jesus sick. This is a hard message to preach because I, I don't think that the majority in the room are half-hearted Christians, but I can't, I can't know that because I can't judge that. I don't know what you do every day on a daily basis. I'm not sure, but I, I feel in my heart a confidence that we have many believers who are truly committed in our church, but this is a warning for us to hear and to understand that half-hearted Christians really do make him sick. He says, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. I think the reason why they make Jesus sick is because they pollute the purity of him. They actually bring Jesus a bad name. How many of you have ever known a Christian that brought Jesus a bad name? If we're honest, we've probably all brought him a bad name ourselves one day or two or a hundred, right? We, we've done something that, that isn't appropriate. But we create misconceptions in other people's minds about who Christ is if we live half-hearted or lukewarm. So look at what verse 17 says. It says this, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, okay, it says pitiable, that's another way to say it, poor, blind, and naked. You know, wealth is not a sin, 
Somebody say amen. Lord, I don't, Lord, please, I'm not committing sin. Lord, please, let, let me be wealthy. Wealth is not a sin in and of itself. But the problem really exists in the attitude people have towards their wealth. Pride is the problem. When you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I don't need anything. And that's the people of Laodicea. They had become arrogant. They allowed their financial independence to lead them down the road of self-satisfaction. Last week, I told you about an earthquake that happened in the ancient city of Philadelphia. It rattled them so much that the government put away taxes for five years and said, anybody who lives in Philadelphia does not need to pay taxes. We want to just invest in the city to rebuild it. So they allowed them to not pay taxes. Laodicea got hit by that same earthquake, but they were so rich and proud, they actually turned the money down and said, no, we'll take care of it ourselves. You can look this up. I'm not making it up. So they decided that they were going to do it themselves. We don't need your help. We'll rebuild ourselves. This attitude translates to their spiritual life as well. Oftentimes it's when we are going through a hard time in a tough season that we feel closest to God. Because when life is smooth and there's really no issue or challenge headed our way, we do tend to forget God. And that's you and I are guilty of that. But the same thing is true even in the Old Testament. It says that same thing. God actually says at some points that he regretted blessing them the way he did because they had forgotten who blessed them. You say, Pastor, move on from this point because I ain't rich. This don't apply to me. Okay, I understand. But here's, here's the deal. It's not a sin to be rich unless it makes you poor in faith. Unless it causes you to decide that you are the person that you, that you need and you don't understand your spiritual poverty. When we face a health crisis or when one of our kids are in trouble or when we have these issues, we, we go to Jesus. Jesus, I need you. It's when things are out of our control that we recognize our spiritual poverty. Can I just tell you, I have recognized lately my spiritual poverty. You and I are in a place, this culture, this world, our economy, all the things around us should cause us to recognize that we are poor and in need of God's help. His strength, his grace, his forgiveness, because we're bankrupt without him. So these people in Laodicea had lost the idea of being aware of what their brokenness represented. They had forgotten and had no illusions about their need or illusions about their need for God's mercy. So they had material blessings and they stopped seeing their need for Jesus Christ. In Revelation, we're confronted with this paradox. And if you've listened to any of the other messages, you've heard this. The churches that have received an encouragement and a warning or just encouragement, those that were the most persecuted are the ones who are receiving the great words of, I will give you a crown. You'll be with me at the finish line. I'll do this for you. I'll do that for you. So the idea is that when we are experiencing hardship, That is when God is close and he wants to help us through those moments. The same is true today. By and large, the American church is overfed by the spiritual word, lazy and complacent. 
Now you say, but pastor, what about the health aid? And what about the, you know, wonderful things going on in places where a tornado comes and, you know, humanitarian stuff. And yeah, listen, I am not downing any of that. And I am not a, a gloom and doom preacher. I am telling you though, that the underground church in China is exploding. People are smuggling Bibles in and have been behind the Iron Curtain for years in order to see the church expand and to grow. And they are experiencing revival like never before. Healings on the regular, signs and miracles accompanying those that believe according to the scripture. And yet here we are in America picking out our shirt to go to Sunday church and trying to figure out where we're going to lunch. There's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, but we have got to understand our deep need for God. If you have kids, you should know you have a deep need for God. It's so true. In verse 18, look at what Jesus gives us the solution. He says, I counsel you to buy from me. You've got all these traders coming through your city that are trading and buying and selling. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold that's been refined by fire. What is that? Does anybody understand what that phrase is? Just nod your head at me. If you've gotten gold refined by a fire, that means all the other stuff has gone out and it is pure gold. So he says, what you buy from me will be the best so that you may be rich. Look at what he says, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Being rich in faith and spirit is more important than earthly riches. It's easier said than done. Having these white garments that Jesus is telling them about, they had to understand this in the hearing, in the, the people hearing that locally then knew, wait a second, does that mean I have to get rid of my black clothes? What is he talking about? Because he was trying to communicate to them and all throughout Revelation, white is a sign of purity. All throughout the Bible, really. It's always been. That's why wedding dresses are white. Hello? Right? I mean, you understand. We still have cultural applications today that demonstrate that white represents without any issues or problems. And yet, I kind of feel like Jesus is saying those black garments represent the blackness of your heart. So I'll give you white garments that you may clothe yourself. You think you're all dressed nice and pretty, but guess what? You're naked. You have literally nothing. And he says, salve to anoint your eyes so you can see your true condition before God. So you can see that you're not rich, you're really poor, that you're not hot or cold, you're lukewarm, that you're not really fashionable. You need these clothes that I'm going to give you to cover up all the dirty and if Jesus' advice seems harsh, because I think sometimes that's like, wait a second, where's the meek and mild Jesus? Let the little children come sit on my lap and I'll tell them a story. When you read something like this, you're like, whoa, wait a second. But him being harsh in this moment is actually a sign of his love. Verse 19 says something important, and parents understand this. It says, those whom I love, I correct and discipline. So be zealous and repent. If I could stop here for a second and say, I don't think it's the job of the parent or the authority to be zealous and repent. Do you understand how that's worded there? And we have some apologetic parents. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't let you do. Oh, I'm sorry, honey. I took your, whatever it is. 
But here's the deal. If you love them, you will discipline them. When your kids disobey or disrespect you or act ungrateful, what do you do? Do you just let them go? Gosh, is it not tiring? (laughs) Is it tiring? It really is. If you're not a parent yet, just wait. Your day is coming. (laughs) It's tiring to have to always be on when they're disrespectful, when they have these bad attitudes, when they disobey blatantly, when they act ungrateful. The truth is a parent who doesn't care doesn't correct. Said like that, the parent who doesn't correct doesn't care. I've stepped on some toes already talking about lukewarm Christians and I'm gonna talk about parenting for a second. Mom and dad hold fast. You should encourage your kids and raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Some of them need more fear of the Lord and you can put that in them, okay? You have your ways, I know. And teenagers who are in here, because college students are kind of already out of that on the fray, but teenagers who are in here should listen to that as well. To be careful to check our actions beforehand so that we don't disobey and hurt the heart of our parents, that we don't disrespect them, that we don't act ungrateful. And this goes for all authorities. So if you don't correct, do you truly love? But yet, you know your kid's little puppy dog eyes, right? Have you ever seen those? Dylan has them. I know he does, right? (laughs) If you don't correct, do you truly love? But mom, you don't love me. Why did you take? You're so mean to me. You know what, honey? (laughs) When you get out of my house and you have your own kids, you'll figure this out. In the meantime, you know, whatever. Okay, fill in the blank with however you would handle it. But if you don't correct, do you truly love? That's not something fun to talk about if you're the one who's being corrected. So God is our heavenly father, right? And he, he says that he disciplines those he loves. He doesn't want us to wander off in disobedience. He doesn't want us to wander off and find ourselves at the edge of a cliff and falling towards destruction. Jesus Christ himself is saying, I am calling you to correct you in order that you would be saved. I don't want you to wander off. So be zealous and repent. Remember what repentance means. It means to change your mind and your actions. Repentance, true repentance, means to change your mind and change your actions. Brighton was talking to me about something this week, my little seven-year-old. And I said, did you know, Brighton, that you have a choice to feel the way you feel? And she looked at me, her eyes wide. No, I, I don't. I just feel this way. I said, no, Brighton, you have a choice in your mind whether you want to feel this way or not, you can think about it some other way. I'm not a perfect parent. I don't know how they're going to turn out. (laughs) Honestly, I'm just thankful for my wife. But I'm saying this to tell you this. She thought in that moment in an immature, childlike way, wait a second, that's not in my control. I I just feel this way. Culture today (laughs) is immature and feeling certain ways, and not allowing God to help them. And we in the church cannot point the finger out there because we are doing the same thing ourselves at times. We must repent, change our mind, the way we think about that thing, whatever it is, fill in the blank, and your actions then will be different. So look at what he says in verse 20. 
He's knocking in verse 20. He says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Stay there. I shared with you during the message, uh, one of the messages in this series about the ancient city gates and how they could only be opened from the inside. There was no outer key. That's an ancient way of doing things. We don't have doors like that mostly anymore. Okay, we do have reverse of that. A prison door will not open from the inside. It's only from the outside to keep someone in. There's, an, there's a familiar painting. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but there's a painter who went through, uh, I want to say it's in the Renaissance period, and he was going through the book of Revelation painting images of Jesus, and he paints an image of Jesus standing at a door that's kind of overgrown to this place, and there's no handle on the outside of the door. There's only a handle on the inside. The understanding that I have when I look at this verse and I understand the context of who these people are and what they understood about just doors, something that simple, is that the door cannot be pushed in by Jesus. He is not an intruder who has come to steal, to kill, or to destroy. He is standing at the door like a perfect gentleman and he's knocking on the door, I would say, of our hearts. And he's asking if he can be allowed in. Do you understand how ironic this is that Jesus Christ church has shut the door to him in Laodicea and has kicked him out and said, you are not allowed here. We're happy on our own. We've got everything taken care of. We got all the money we need. We don't need your help. Let's just keep putting on our Sunday black best and show up and show off. And Jesus is saying, I am standing outside the door waiting for you to allow me entrance. There's something intimate in this, this last phrase too. And you got to understand this. Think about it. When you, some of you ladies might balk at this, but when you've invited someone over to your house for a meal, right? You've had to clean and do a lot of stuff, okay? Before they got there. But when they come over, that's a special time together. It's just you and the people you've invited, It's a special moment. In the ancient Near East, in this day and time that this is written, the most generous, awesome thing you could do, an act for another person that would be hospitality at its finest, is if someone knocked on your door, regardless of who they were, didn't matter what tribe, skin color, religion, or anything, if they knocked on your door and they needed help, you opened your door, you prepared them a meal, you sat down and you fellowshiped with them. It was the highest honor. And Jesus says, I want that honor with you again, that I could come in and sit down and we could have a chat and I can tell you what I love about you. I can ask you about your day. I can do all these things, but you won't let me back in my church. He needs an invitation. And here's the thing. That's all it takes. Literally, that's all it takes to start this process. Yes, there's a lot of work after. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Life as a Christian is challenging, just like life as a human is challenging. But when we have life as a believer in Christ and we put our faith in him, then we have so many more blessings that come through it. We can endure in the midst of the hardship that we face, but we've got to allow him access and let him come in. So if the spirit has been speaking to any of you throughout this series. I think one of the things that he's been saying, he's been knocking on the door 
of our heart. I've heard from several individuals who not just, you know, hey, pastor, good, good message today. Several people who said, pastor, the message you preached today caused me to make a decision and I'm not going back. That means that we are listening to the Holy Spirit. He says, if anyone hears my voice, but maybe the music inside is too loud. Maybe the activity in the house is too much. Maybe the door he's coming to is not the front door. And maybe it's a side door that's not used very often. Yet he's out there saying, can I come in? Will you let me in? When you sense that knock and you sense that Holy Spirit speaking to you, and he could be doing that today about a sin, a problem, an issue, a distraction in your life, whatever it is, when you hear that, act upon it. Because delayed obedience is disobedience. Look at what he says in verse 21 and 22. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. I think this is pretty cool. I don't know how big his throne is. There's no dimensions mentioned in scripture, but we, we have some ideas that people have put together over a long period of time from the Old Testament all the way through that he sits on a very large throne. I don't know if this means that we're going to sit intimately, like cuddle up with him, kind of like a kid would with their parent. Or I don't know if it's a throne that's just really, really wide that everybody, he says this, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. There's so much blessing that waits for us on the other side of eternity if we would just put our minds on those things and stop being focused so much on the things of this world. Worship team, would you come as I finish out these verses right here? It says this, sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. In this next moment, what we do, if you're not familiar with it, is we let the worship team do one more song and we kind of close out with a time of prayer, just committing to the Lord about whatever the message, how it touched your heart, whatever God spoke to you. But I really think that there are two groups of people who are here in this room today. And I want you to do your best to not be distracted by what's going on or any activity and just listen very closely. I really believe there are two groups of people and so I'm gonna give two different prayers today. But what, we've, what we do right now in this room has the ability to affect eternity. It really does. The first group of people would be those who maybe have never made a decision of faith. You're here today and you can never really kind of point to a moment that you can say, you know, this is the moment I was so-and-so years old and this is when I did this, I committed my life to him. And you have an opportunity today to invite Jesus Christ to be the Lord and Savior of your life. Becoming a Christian is really simple. It's ABC, if you can remember these things. And let me share them with you. If you're a believer here today and you say, Pastor, I've already heard this before. I am a believer. I don't need to pray this prayer. You ought to listen and probably take notes because you can share this with a friend who is hurting who is desperate for the God that you serve, who needs the answer. The first thing is you've got to admit you're a sinner. Nobody wants to do that because everybody these days is telling how, well, I'm not really a sinner. I'm just not perfect. No, we're all dirty, filthy, rotten, no good scoundrels, full of sin. 
God created you and me for perfection, but we fall short of what his purpose is for us. The Bible says this in 1 John 1, 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He says, I am the faithful one, the amen. I am the way, the truth and the life. So the truth has no place in us if we say we're without sin or "Eh, it's not really that big of a deal. Yes, it is. So salvation begins with admitting that you are a sinner. The B stands for believing in Jesus. We've got to believe in his work on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. We've got to really understand these things. He sent his son to die in your place. It was a substitution. You deserve hell and death and every bad thing. But Jesus says, you're mine. I want you to be mine. I will take the punishment for you. The Bible says that he became sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I think sometimes believers, we make this so hard. (laughs) We make it so hard for people because it just, it sounds unattainable. Well, I don't have the right clothes. Well, I sure don't have the right actions. Well, I'm still working on this. Well, I don't know if I can commit. Here's the deal. They need to commit to eternity. That's the choice that we have in front of us today. And if you're here today and you say, I don't have one of those moments I can point to, the C stands for commit your life. Commit to follow Christ with your whole heart. This is not a one and done thing. It's a whole heart and a whole life commitment. It's true that when we choose to follow Christ, we'll have to say no and let go of some things. But he's with us every step of the way. If you're here today, all of us who are here, let me do this. Let me have you all close your eyes and just bow your heads in your seats. We're not going to have prayer stations available today for prayer for needs, but I want to make this clear. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, today is the day I need to admit that I'm a sinner. I absolutely do believe in Jesus Christ being my Lord and Savior, and I want to commit my life to him. No matter what it takes, I want what he wants for me. If that's you, just raise your hand anywhere here. Anyone here. I'll give you just a moment to respond. You shouldn't be embarrassed by this if this is you. I want you to know where you will end up in eternity. Today can be your day that you make that decision. Last call, anyone. All right, look up at me, believers, because I believe everybody here is a believer. If I believe you and take you at your word, here's the deal. The idea that we have from Laodicean church is this, the same idea that comes from the prodigal son story. The prodigal son remained a son even though he was in the mire and the muck. God can still be your God even though you have sinned even though you have lost your love for him, even though you have separated yourself from him. Maybe some of you have divorced God from your life in some way or just in an area of your life, but you feel like, you know that song that we sang earlier, set a fire in me? I don't have the passion 
behind that. I don't have that like I should. Once upon a time, we accepted Jesus or we walked an aisle. But maybe if you're like me, I've hit seasons before where I've kind of backed away from what God wanted for me, didn't read my Bible regularly, didn't fellowship with the church like I should, kind of fell out of love, if you will, with the Lord. And if that's you today, I want to ask you to return home because you can, because he wants to take you back. 70 times seven is what he told them to forgive human to human sin. How much more will your father in heaven accept you back and say, yes, let's give it another shot. Come on home. So if you say, pastor, you know, in some area of my life, there's compromise or I feel like I'm lukewarm and I'm not white hot like I should be. Just lift your hand up right now. Anybody here, several of us, your pastor is raising his hand today. I want you to know that. While you're in your seats and before they begin to sing this song, I just want you to whisper a prayer. You can put your hands down if you've lifted them. I want you to just tell Jesus that you're sorry that you 